Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the Minnesota Lynx heartbreaking Game 5 loss in the WNBA Finals. A reminder, it's not too early to fill out a free application for federal student aid. And iconic percussionist Sheila E. returns to Minnesota for a benefit concert that honors the philanthropic spirit of her late friend and collaborator, Prince. But first, the third and final presidential debate of the election cycle is history, and the election is just a couple weeks away. It's probably no surprise to those who have been watching and listening, but the debate was not without controversy. I spoke with Carleton College political analyst Stephen Shear about what it all means. Well, I think the main news from the debate is how Donald Trump uh, squandered an otherwise sound debate performance by refusing to accept the outcome of the election in November. Uh, That's never happened before in the debate or in an American election campaign, and uh, it's not good news for him. What does it mean, do you think, to the average voter that he's not willing to, uh, at this point, accept the outcome, at least as far as what he's saying? Well, I think it's been a tough campaign season for voters as well as candidates, and I don't think voters want to be kept in suspense, as Trump put it, uh, about whether the outcome will be accepted by one of the major party nominees. Uh, it's uh, it's just bad form. <laughs> You know, we spoke before the debate and you said that one of the things that Trump needed to do is appeal more to uh, swing voters or voters beyond his base. How well did he do that? Uh, I think Trump had uh, on substance his best debate. Uh, If you look at the entire 90 minutes, uh, the debate was well structured. It was very substantive. The moderator did an excellent job. Uh, and uh, Trump was scoring some points against Hillary Clinton, but all that went out the window when he refused to accept the outcome of the election. As far as Hillary is concerned, uh, when we spoke beforehand, you said essentially she needed to play prevent defense, and uh, did she do that, and if so, was it effective? Well, uh, Hillary Clinton did take a number of hits from Donald Trump on a variety of policy issues. Uh, But during the big moment when he said he would keep America in suspense about whether he'd accept the outcome of the debate, uh, she and the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace, both noted that this was extraordinary and dangerous behavior. So that was a big plus for her. So did that really kind of overshadow everything else that happened in the debate as far as you're concerned? Yeah, if you take that incident out and maybe about seven minutes when they were talking about emails and uh, the sexual harassment charges against Trump, uh, you'll see that it was uh, a very substantive covering a wide range of issues and the candidates were forced by time limits to speak directly to those issues. So if a voter was looking for information about where the candidates stood on issues, this was an excellent debate to receive that information. Did Donald Trump gain any ground in bringing up WikiLeaks? I think uh, Trump did score some points with uh, Clinton uh, by bringing up WikiLeaks and also by bringing up revelations that a consultant hired by the Democratic Party and apparently funded by the Clinton campaign attempted to violently uh, disrupt Trump rallies. Those were effective points that he made against her. 
And Clinton seemed to flounder a little bit when it came to questions about the Clinton Foundation. How much of an impact might that have in these final weeks leading up to the election? Well, the Clinton Foundation is a money story, and it's a very complicated one, and it's not something that uh, most voters will grasp immediately. And so it's not clear to me that this is a that damaging uh, a story for Hillary Clinton. I guess it is in the sense that there are a whole bunch of stories about Clinton and her campaign that suggest less than ethical behavior, and it does add to that image. And thanks again to my guest, Carleton College political science professor Stephen Shear. We're going to switch gears a little bit now, still staying on the topic of politics. Bill Werner spoke with Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz, about the future of the Republican Party. If Donald Trump loses this election, there are those who say that it, it means the, the vaporization of the Republican Party. Agree or disagree? Well, the Republican Party was already facing a problem even before Donald Trump, that the core base of supporters for the Republican Party were what's known as the silent generation, those born between 1925 and 1945. And that's a population that is getting ready to exit out of the political system. So even without him, the party was facing some challenges. And now add to that the way Trump has in many ways split the Republican Party at least into two, um, if not into more coalitions. Um, it's going to be very difficult should he lose um, to really mend the Republican Party in their near future because um, it will really be a party really torn against itself at this point. But it's going to have to happen, isn't it, as, a, as at least a one viable alternative to, uh, to Democratic party control? Or might some of the third parties emerge and might new co coalitions form? Would you care to hazard a prediction on that? Well, I think what will more likely happen is that the Republican Party becomes the shell out of which a new party is invented. You know, sometimes we actually see new parties emerge. You know, in the Republican Party at one point was the third party back in the 1850s, and it eventually became one of the two parties. Um, but we also think about how parties have changed over time. And again, think of the Republican Party. At one point, it was the party of Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, the party that embraced civil rights and environmentalism. And the Democratic Party was the party of the South that opposed civil rights, and the parties basically redefined themselves over, you know, since the 1930s. My suspicion is we'll see the Republican and the Democratic parties redefining themselves, and part of why that redefinition is going to occur anyhow is that we're seeing a whole new generation, the millennials, um, start to come of political age in America, and they're going to redefine both the Democratic and Republican parties, and I suspect they will use those shells to redefine a new two-party system. Thank you for that report, Bill, and for that insight, Professor Schultz. We'll have our answers in a few weeks on Election Day. That's November 8th. Don't forget to vote. More Minnesota Matters after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast. F-A-S-T. The sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. F-A-S-T. Face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of... Your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather... So learn F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on, because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, 
teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Well, the season didn't finish the way the 2016 Minnesota Lynx wanted it to. The defending WNBA champion Lynx are champions no more. They lost Game 5 of the league finals on Thursday night at Target Center. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm was there. Scott, after leading for most of all three quarters of play, the Lynx allowed Los Angeles to go on a 24-10 run from late in the third quarter to late in the fourth quarter. The Sparks went from down six to up eight over that span. But Minnesota wouldn't go away, playing in front of 19,000 screaming fans. Down by eight, Minnesota scored eight straight points to tie the game late. Then with 20 seconds left, Minnesota trailed by one. John Folke was at the Lynx Radio Network microphone. Struggling to get it in, finally gets it to Maya in the left corner. She'll drive on Beard. It falls. Maya, turnaround jumper. Got it! 15.4. No timeouts for L.A. Into the front court. Gray. She's got it top of the key. Drives on Simone. Cut off. Turns. Fires it up with seven. It's no good. Agumake blocks the putback. Good! With 3.1 seconds to go. And L.A. leads 77-76. Lynx have to go the length of the court with 3.1. Whalen gets it into Brunson. Back to Lindsay from half court. She'll fire it up. Off glass, and it's no good. And L.A. has won the 2016 WNBA Championship 77-76 in a thrilling game here at Target Center. Neka Agumake, the putback, which was the game winner. And the L.A. Sparks have won their third WNBA Championship in franchise history. Unbelievable. So it was a highly disappointing ending for the Lynx. Hutchinson native Lindsey Whalen, the Minnesota point guard, came up with a couple of clutch fourth quarter buckets, but in the post-game locker room. Yeah, they're all tough when it's the last one and, you know, put ourselves a chance and a chance to win a championship and didn't get it done, so it's always, always, um, it's always tough. Los Angeles head coach Brian Agler started his WNBA coaching career as the Lynx head coach and now has come full circle, clinching a title for the Sparks at the Target Center where it all began for him. I've got friends here. I mean, you know, the, the people in the organization are friends of mine. Um, I really have a lot of admiration for their staff. I've worked with Shelly. I've watched Cheryl, Jim build this program and uh, just a lot of respect. And, you know, we've had a lot of battles against each other in L.A. this season, last year in Seattle, and um, just the ultimate respect for what they've built. And it's not going to go away. I mean, I know they're getting older a little bit, but they're going to they're gonna be extremely competitive. It wouldn't shock me at all if they were right back in the same spot next year. Um, you know, Maya Moore is just um, – she's an incredible player. And not to slight anybody else on their team because they've got a bunch of really good players great players, Olympians, but she's special. I mean, she's, she's as good as there is and probably will stay at that level and, and make everybody race to her level as time goes on. You know, they talked about Houston, they talk about Minnesota, and is it good for the league to have a team like that? Yes, it's good because it makes everybody else better. And when we were putting our team together this year, it was about what do we need to do to beat Minnesota? How can we play with them? And so, I don't have any feelings of any other way than just respect for them. That's, that's it. I mean, I enjoyed my days here. My kids grew up here, um, and there's a lot of good people in this area. 
As for a sidebar story, a basket by a Sparks player with just more than a minute to play appeared to come after the shot clock expired. Minnesota head coach Cheryl Reeve did not hold back in the postgame news briefing. After complimenting the Sparks on the win, Reeve said of the missed call. And they don't want to um, do like other teams do, which is bemoan the officiating. In that, they botched a call at 114. Neka Gumake's shot was not good. It was reviewable at the time when she shot it. The referees at that point didn't think anything was wrong. They didn't understand that it was the end of the clock. They didn't hear the shot clock. When they put the ball in play, the play is no longer reviewable. Yet in the first quarter, three or four minutes or five minutes could go by till the next stoppage of play for a review. Okay, so it's really unfortunate that players continually put themselves out there playing and competing at a really high level, whether it was the eight-second call in the game in L.A., doesn't matter, okay? The game today, it's not fair to the players. It's not enough just to apologize and send out a memo that they got something wrong, okay? These players are so invested, and something must be done about the officiating in this league because it is not fair to these great players that we have. Reeve was asked what she would like to see done. I don't get paid enough to have to do somebody else's job, too. Just get the simple things right. Simple. Eight-second call. Shot clock violation. Get the simple things right, and we'll live with the other stuff that happens in a game. Reeve says this isn't about who won or lost the game. And I'm not taking anything away from L.A. Please know that. You know, L.A., I, you know, I commend it. They, you know, I mean, it takes hustle plays to win championships on the road, and, and, and they made hustle plays. You know, but it's, you know, it's unfortunate that we're even having, you know, you know, this discussion and, you know, the, you know, the number of people that have contacted us and said that shot was no good. It's unfortunate. I mean, I don't know what happens from there. Maybe they still win. I don't know. That's why I don't want to take anything away from L.A. So the Lynx will have to have a bounce back team again in 2017. The last two times they've lost, they've come back the next year to win it all. Scott? Thank you, Mike. More Minnesota Matters after this. Don't you wish that getting your child to eat right, move more, and spend less time in front of a screen could be as easy as pushing a button? It might not be that simple, but you do have more power than you know. And you can maximize that power with proven strategies, tips, and tools from the National Institutes of Health's We Can, or Ways to Enhance Children's Activity and Nutrition program. We Can offers all kinds of resources, including fun recipes and activities the family can do together to show you the way to live a healthier lifestyle. We're not saying it's easy. We are saying that it can be done. Take the first step today. Call 1-866-359-3226 for a free We Can Parents Handbook. And be sure to visit the We Can website at wecan.nhlbi.nih.gov for free information, too. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. If your walls could talk, what would they say? I have held the same mirror for 13 years. I have been decorated with purple dinosaurs, baseball teams, and football helmets. I have witnessed 33 Thanksgiving dinners and one wedding proposal. I have tiny notches marking the growth of three children. I have caused a learning disability. I am the reason that a fifth grader simply can't sit still. I am responsible for a five-year-old's rage. Just because you can't see lead paint doesn't mean it's not on walls, doors, windows, and sills. 
Today, lead paint poisoning affects over 1 million children. If your home was built before 1978, your family could be at risk. Let's make all kids lead-free kids. Log on to leadfreekids.org or call 800-424-LEAD. I am the reason a child has trouble hearing. If your walls could talk, what would they say? Brought to you by the Coalition to End Childhood Lead Poisoning. EPA, HUD, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota families are being reminded it's not too early to fill out the free application for federal student aid form. MN's Tasha Radel has more on the financial aid changes. College students are being encouraged to fill out those financial aid forms sooner rather than later. Applications started being processed October 1st, three months earlier than previous years. Joining me to explain the free application for federal student aid form changes is Ginny Dodds. She's the manager of state financial aid programs at the Minnesota Office of Higher Education. Welcome, Ginny. Can you explain why such an early start? The federal government um, has um, moved forward the period of time you can file your free application for federal student aid or FAFSA. It used to be available January 1st preceding the uh, academic year and now has been moved back to October 1st to give students more time to apply, kind of align the financial aid application process with the admissions application process, which often starts in the fall, and really to give students more time to um, make educated decisions about which college they want to attend, sort of comparison shop based on the financial aid packages each college would offer them. And this, by moving the FAFSA filing period earlier, that will mean a lot of colleges will be trying to notify students earlier about their eligibility for financial aid. And, you know, um, do you encourage all students, whether they think they qualify or not, for financial aid to apply? Yes. Um, Many families think they won't qualify and they don't bother to fill out the FAFSA, but uh, we always recommend that everyone do that. Um, It's really, it takes the average family between 20, 25 minutes to do the FAFSA on the web. Um, And that is a form that's going to be used to determine eligibility for all sorts of financial aid programs, including federal student loans. And so even if a family had an income that was out of the range for grant, need-based grant eligibility, uh, they may still qualify for loans and are going to have to do that FAFSA for that reason. And so it's kind of like a, is it fair to say kind of like a one-stop shop, a really good, just a good base starter? Exactly. Many many colleges will just use the FAFSA results for all um, all forms of financial aid. Um, there may be some scholarships offered by colleges that might have their own applications in addition to the FAFSA, but uh, for a lot of colleges, that will be the main you know financial aid application used for all purposes. And is there any advantages to getting this form filled out sooner rather than later? There is, but I um, I want to caution that uh, there isn't a real early deadline for things like government financial aid, like the federal Pell Grant or Minnesota State Grant. But um, it it helps to apply early 
to be considered for other forms of financial aid that may run out of money and may be awarded on a first come first serve basis and and so and in there I'm talking about maybe um scholarships offered by the college itself or um programs like work study and something called the supplemental educational opportunity grant which is a federal grant for very low income students a lot of those run out of um money and so um they will oftentimes have a earlier deadline than what is in place for a Pell grant or Minnesota state grant all right perfect uh, anything else you'd like to add today that i didn't bring up yeah um the other change that's accompanying um the earlier fafsa is that it will not the fafsa will now be asking for income information for 2 years prior and you'll hear it called prior prior year normally if you were applying for the 1718 academic year it would be based on tax year 2016 income it's now going back one additional year to tax year 2015 and that will mean that um there won't be the problems with families having to hurry up and file their taxes in order to do the fafsa um their 2015 taxes should all be filed by now the free application for federal student aid can be found online at fafsa.ed.gov. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns in a minute. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, the charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at StaplesForStudents.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Sheila E. is in town this week to promote Purple Philanthropy with a benefit concert and art fair in Minneapolis. The iconic percussionist has been a successful solo artist for decades and has played with everyone from Marvin Gaye to Ringo Starr. And of course, she famously collaborated and partnered with Prince at the height of his Purple Rain fame and beyond. I recently chatted with Sheila about her relationship with Prince, her connection to Minnesota, and why Purple Philanthropy is so important to her. It came about when we noticed that since Prince's passing, that some of the organizations, foundations really, that Prince was supporting, especially in the Twin Cities, uh, were not getting funding. And without funding, you know, they can't continue to help the inner city kids. And um, since I have my own charity, Elevate Hope and Elevate Oakland, I know what that's like. Um, so we decided to start Purple Philanthropy as a means of, money people can donate to that that name purple philanthropy and then 
a lot of these uh, foundations that he supported, they uh, submit a grant, and then the money goes to them. This must be pretty close to your heart, considering your own humble beginnings and your strong connection to Prince. Yeah, uh, it, it, and this has been very challenging, to say the least. It's, uh, you know, but we're excited to do this and, and come back to the Twin Cities and uh, perform his music, and we will also have uh, some of the young people there, a 10-year-old, a 13-year-old, uh, some of the younger kids performing with us, which we're excited about. And you can see some of those kids from his foundation to be a part of this. So, um, And we're also, people are donating. If they can't be there, they're donate, donating at Minnesota Orchestra Hall. Uh, and with that donation, buys tickets so some of the kids in the inner city can come and uh, watch the show, which is amazing because we want to definitely fill the room with the kids that we're helping and assisting. If you don't mind, tell me just a little bit about that connection that you had to Prince. He, he always seems so mysterious, even though here in Minnesota, obviously, we're very proud to call him one of our own. Yeah, I mean, him and I met so very young. I mean, it's 1977. No one knew who he was. He was just doing his record. I was already out on tour. He was following me. He was wanted to meet me and, um, you know, was excited about meeting me when I finally got to meet him and said he'd been watching me for many years at that time. And, uh, you know, we became friends instantly. And he loved the Bay Area, Oakland, California, where I'm born and raised. Wanted to be there a lot because the the, the music scene there in the Bay Area was pretty amazing, having all the artists that we have coming from the Bay. Uh, he wanted to be, he was influenced by a lot of those musicians and artists from the Bay Area. So he wanted to record his first record there. Um so in recording his record, we became friends, and we just hung out, jammed, you know, hung out. I showed him a lot of the Bay Area, and he just kept coming back, you know. And uh, that's that's a long, long time ago, you know. Um, and to, to be able to be a part of his life and and uh, him and I being together in so many years, writing, uh, jamming, recording, performing, um, you know, just hanging out. I mean, it, it's a, it's a lifetime. You are a great musician, and you've had the opportunity and the fortune to play with a lot of great musicians. I've always been curious if you could describe what it was like to play with Prince and to write music with him. It was interesting because with him and I, uh, we challenged each other, so it, it was fun, but at the same time, it's like we shared a lot of music that each of us didn't know. Like, uh, definitely, he had no idea about the Latin jazz the way that I did because my dad played my fa- our family played together and when he first came to sit, to watch me play with my dad and my family uh he was just overwhelmed it was like you know the best kept secret and couldn't believe it it's like and how lucky and blessed am I to be able to play with my family in the you know a 15 piece band uh you know he had never seen anything like that so you know those kinds of things to be able to share with each other and then his things that he would like as well and so we would continue to just, you know, share things. I mean, you know, the way that I would record, the way that he would record, um, you know, it was just a lot of fun. There are many, many days and weeks and months and, I mean, years being with him that it was just him and I in the studio. A lot of times I would end up uh, recording him on his guitar, punching him in on a lot of the solos, you know, that he manually couldn't do because he's playing a solo. I mean, he's, he was brilliant at punching in his, his, his solos, you know, but, uh, 
there were definitely times where um, I couldn't, he couldn't do it, that I was there definitely acting as engineer for him. So um, I, you know, we just shared a lot of things together. And as I understand it, you talked a, a little bit ago about how you get to play with your family, and I understand you're going to be playing with your dad here when you're in town. What is that like? As much as I can, I love to play with my family, and my dad is coming to the show. Um, and you know, Prince loved my dad. He loved his music. He loved my dad. Um, he just, again, thought I was just the luckiest girl in the world to be able to play with my father. Uh, as he wanted to do with his father. So he loved pops. He loved sitting in. He always thought my dad was classy and dressed the best and, you know, took notes and said, you know, that's that's the way to dress. That's the way to play. That's, a, you know, so for my dad to come and do this, my dad is honored and, and loved that I asked him to be a part of this uh, charity event. What does playing this particular event in Minnesota mean to you, the fact that it's in Minnesota? Is there a significance to that? Well, absolutely. We came back purposely to play the Twin Cities because uh, first addressing the foundations that he supported uh, there in the Twin Cities is very important, and they're not getting funding. So, um, you know, we need to start at home first. So Minneapolis is like my second home. I've, I've spent a lifetime there creating music and having fun and living a life uh, and learning about the Twin Cities and to come back there to do this is absolutely the right thing to do and to be able to uh, support and continue his legacy in supporting uh, the foundations that he did support. Thanks again to my guest, Sheila Eeb. To learn more about Purple Philanthropy, you can visit the Purple Philanthropy Facebook page. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. <laughs>